Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshipping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Good morning, everyone. I cannot begin to tell you the joy that these parables have been to me as I have been going through them. So whether it's on Thursday's class or occasionally I'll bring them to the pulpit, it's because, honestly, they have just come alive in my heart. And it has also helped me in understanding even the the context of why and where all of this takes place. Once we set the base in Matthew 13 for what a parable is and why did Jesus give them, why did he start teaching in parables two years after his ministry, why then, why so much, why did he want to hide it? from the listening ears. Why did he say, you don't have ears to hear, eyes to see? He says, but to my disciples, to my followers, he says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom and to understand these parables. And that, that just has set a base. And as I realized that these parables are by nature, the greater majority of them, evangelistic. That has given me yet another aspect of how Jesus did street evangelism in Old Testament times. Because it was Old Testament, guys. You got to get that through you. I know you're reading the New Testament, but it's still Old Testament times. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross. The resurrection hasn't happened. The Spirit hasn't come. So it's just been, for me, very, very, very important and challenging. Now... The, the parable is uh, the one that it begins in verse 28, the parable of the two sons. I mean, I, I assume you've seen, heard, read that parable. You know, man has two sons, says to the one son, go to work. Yeah, dad, doesn't go. Go to work. No, dad, repents, goes to work. I mean, how complicated is that, right? You've had that with your own kids, right? Get a job. <laughs> But get it in the context. Start where it begins and understand what's been taking place for the days around it. And it is, well, an indictment. It is the authority of Jesus bringing down an indictment upon its listeners. And it is awesome. So let's pray. Hey, look, it's the last Sunday in this building, right? We got to go out with a big flame, right? Now, that usually takes me about an hour, so relax. This is only, this is the last one here, so don't worry. We won't do two here anymore. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And your spirit has communicated it through your authors for our purpose. Lord, may you speak to us and challenge us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The word authority. It's a strong word. It's filled with meaning. When we hear the word authority, there's a certain force about the word. 
There may be even certain uh, intimidation about the word. We, we talk about authorities. Um, we, we rightfully have a sense of respect uh, for that word. Sometimes uh, uh, we, we, we sense uh, awe, honest, you know, if, if, we, if that authority is someone that we look to. Sometimes maybe even a sense of fear. The word authority denotes permission, denotes privilege, it denotes power, it denotes rule, control, influence. In the home, authority rests upon the parents. In the government, upon the authorities that they delegate, whether it's the police to the local uh, community uh, authorities, uh, federal authorities here in Spain. In the schools, there are authorities in business, there's authorities at your workplace, there's authorities. Every dimension, the church has authorities. There are authorities everywhere you turn and look. So when you don't get along with authorities, you pretty much live a miserable life. Ergo, rebellion. Now, authority that surpasses all authority is given to us in very few words in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. This is what Jesus said. He said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That is an amazing claim to power, to permission. To write. Jesus then goes on to show us throughout the writings, he demonstrated that authority. Let me just give you some verses. Matthew 7, verse 29, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority. What does that mean? Well, in those days, everyone spoke quoting somebody's rabbi, some past rabbi. And the older he was and the deader he was, the more authority he seemed to have, you know? And so they all just quoted rabbis. Different schools would quote the different rabbis that they felt were the real wise guys. Jesus quoted nobody, footnoted no one. He didn't say he had gotten this truth from such and such a rabbi. He just spoke. And authority. Matthew 9. He healed the paralytic man. He forgave his sin. And the multitude saw it and amazed, marveled, and glorified God, saying, Who had given such authority unto men? <clears throat> Mark 1.22 it says, And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes who would quote a rabbi. Verse 27 of the same chapter says, With authority commands he even unclean spirits and they do obey him. In John 1.12, Jesus uh, it says that it says of him that he, that he has the right, the power that to whoever would believe, he would give them the right, the power to become the children of God. He had the authority to make children of God. In John 5, 17, it says that God had given him authority to execute judgment. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. Nobody's going to kill me. 
I lay down my life. And when I'm done, I'll get up and walk out of that grave. Wow, that's authority. In John 17, 2, he's praying and he's speaking of himself to the Father in that, in that high priestly prayer. And he says, as you has give, have given me authority over all flesh, listen to this, that I should give eternal life to as many as you have given me. Wow. He has the right, the authority to give eternal life. What authority? Authority to teach whatever he wants to teach without any uh, uh, resource, without any um, president, able to make what he teach binding to men, determinative to the source of eternal life. Authority to heal the sick, authority to raise the dead, authority to cast out demons, authority to forgive sins, authority to designate children of God, authority to give eternal life, authority to judge every person you wonder why he was a problem to them Jesus was a problem to the establishment to the religious establishment because they believed that they were the authorities he didn't ask them to approve his doctrine didn't ask him to approve his healings. Didn't ask him to approve his casting out of demons. He didn't ask him to approve his verdicts on who he would judge. He didn't ask him to help and decide who should have eternal life or who should be made children of God. He didn't ask them. He totally ignored them. Well, that is not in the annals of Authority, that is not how you, make info, how you influence people to make friends, right? Unless you're God. That's your authority. He doesn't have to ask anybody. We've got to consider two words very quickly, because you've you got to get this. There, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's two words for authority. One is the word dynamos, which is where we get the word um, uh, dynamite, and it means power. It's a very simple word for power, the, the, uh, the capacity to do something, all right? Then there's another word that is um, exousia, and, and that word can be translated as power, but it really is best translated as authority. So what's the difference? Well, dunamis or power is the ability to do something. Exosia is the authority, meaning the right to do it. I was thinking, I'm going to give a quick... I might have the power to bodily pick you up and take you out of this room. But do I have the authority? Get it? Power, authority aren't the same thing. Jesus had both. When we say Jesus had the authority, we mean not just that he had the power to do it, but he had the privilege to do it. God had given Jesus the privilege to act on his behalf in this world with no regards for the authority of men. He had both dunamis and exousia. He had power. He had authority. And in John chapter 2, 
was one of the first incidents where we see that both power and authority displayed. He walks into the temple at the beginning of his ministry, just came back from the desert. He's gone to this wedding. He shows up at Jerusalem and he has the power. He makes a whip. He has the power. He turned over these tables. He freed the animals. He created chaos. But he also had the authority. To clean the temple. Now you got to get the setting. So you, when we get to verse 23. You've got to know where we're standing. And it will mean even more. So you, you kind of start. Jesus has just come up from Jericho. To Jerusalem. He has stopped uh, in Bethany. At the house of Lazarus and Mary. He stays there that, that Friday night. Saturday he gets up. He ministers there. Sunday he is ministering with the people there in Bethany. They're coming. Because he had just done a miracle. He had done this miracle. When you look at the harmony of the Gospels, you realize he did this miracle. He raised Lazarus, went away, came back not long after. Well, you know, when you come back to the neighborhood of a guy you just raised from the dead, you're going to draw attention, don't you think? So the crowds came and he ministered to them on that Sunday. On Monday, he gets up. And he goes down into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. What we know is that triumphal entry. And the people are putting palms and laying their clothes in their path and singing Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. And they hailed him as Messiah. And he received that hail. He then returns back to Bethany that Monday night and spends yet another night with Lazarus and his sisters. Tuesday morning, dawns, he gets up, goes back to Jerusalem, and he cleans out the temple for a second time in a little over two years. And now, the flames are fanned even more with anger. He finishes up, turns back around, goes back to Bethany, we assume, to spend that last night there also with Lazarus and Martha. He unmasked their hypocrisy and the falseness of their religious system again. On Wednesday morning, he goes back to the temple, verse 23. He's at the temple again. He had cleansed the temple the day before. He now confronts the leaders and the people who are gathered there. It's almost as if he had to clean that temple to come back and do one last final day of teaching at that temple. Like, I, it's going to be my last. We got to clean it up. We're going to divide it into four ideas very quickly. There is a confrontation with the leaders. That's one. There is the counter question that Jesus poses to them, number two. There is the characterization of humanity. That is the parable. Where he characterizes humanity into two groups. And then the connection. 
That's when he really brings the sting down onto the listener. So we'll go as quickly as we can. I make no promises. That was just the introduction. Number one, the confrontation, verse 23. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave them, who gave this authority to you? See, now we know what the problem is. See, the problem is we see the issue clearly. Authority. Who on earth gave this man this authority? They are confused, confounded. Actually, they're thinking that by challenging his authority, they're going to just rack up more reasons to take his life. You see, he came to clean up Israel. He wasn't concerned with the fort of Antonia, the Roman guardship. He wasn't concerned with the economy. He wasn't concerned with the state of the nation's military ability. He wasn't concerned with their economics or their social status. He was concerned with the state of the nation spiritually. He was no political messiah. He was a savior. And he came and confronted the heart of the nation where it needed to be confronted, at the temple, the place of worship, the center of Judaism that had so far strayed from God. <coughs> the New Testament kind of says the same thing, you know that? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter writes this, judgment has to begin at the house of God. Stop throwing rocks at your politicians. Vote them out of office. Start worrying about the church. You want God to affect our country? Let's make sure we have churches that are preaching the gospel and not some social thing. Let's make sure we have churches that are talking about God and his righteousness and his holiness and calling people out to change, to repent. Don't blame the politician. Jesus didn't. Don't blame the economy. Jesus didn't. Don't blame Wall Street. Well, everybody blames Wall Street. If Wall Street were in another country, it would probably feel better. You know, Jesus blamed the religious system. The religious system. Verse 23, you might be asking the question, well, what did he teach? It's not that hard to figure out what he was teaching. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, this is after the resurrection, after the 50 days that he would hung around teaching. It says in, in Acts that he taught things per to the kingdom of God. You know what he taught? The same thing he was teaching before he went to the cross. Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He was teaching them about the kingdom. But now, in the harmonies, you find this. In the, in the parallel passages of Luke and Mark, Luke adds that he was preaching the gospel. At that day, at that moment in the temple. Mark, in chapter 11, he adds that he was walking about. Now, the, the, the temple mount is 
it was a very big patio, it was a humongous thing, and there were porticles on it, under it, and, and, and different rabbis would pick different areas, and they would be with their students there teaching, and Jesus was just kind of walking about, sort of picking up students as he went, you know, as he would teach, they would sort of leave their rabbi and say, well, this guy teaches with authority, let's go listen to him. And he had this crowd following him, and what is he doing? Well, he's teaching about the kingdom, he's preaching the gospel, and the leaders are up to here. Who has given you this authority? Yesterday, you came in here and you made a mess. Today, you're teaching this doctrine. Who told you you could do that? <coughs> so who's in that group? It says priests and elders, leaders. Well, probably all the priests were there. I don't know if you know this. On a given day, there were no less than 156 priests at the Temple Mount. On a given day. Because you have your daily priest, your weekly priest, your monthly priest, your ceremonial priest. You could have had the high priest and then there was the other high priest. Which because he was kind of like on a, on a sabbatical. There were two of them. And so uh, probably they were there because there was a big confrontation. So Caiaphas and Ananas was probably, they were all there. They were there to confront authority. You know, all religion, all religion, without any exception, that is based on human works, on self-achievement, is very much taken back by the authority of Scripture. They always want to know why we listen to this book. Why we are so set on listening to well, it's old, you know, they'll tell us. It's out of date. It's no longer applicable to our society. They want to come up. It, was it really, you know, it's not really inspired. You know, it's a few good stories in there. Because the authority that's in the book dismantles their religious systems of self-works, of self-propagation. They are against the religion of divine accomplishment where God does the work in us. <clears throat> so they show up and basically are saying, show us your ordination papers. Show us your credentials. I remember the first time we began, my wife and I working among expats, we were asked to go to Benny Dorm. This is a long time ago. It was supposed to be just a one-time thing. Yeah. And so we were like, we're going to go preach in English? All right, let's go do it. This might be fun. Let's, you know. I thought, well, we're not here in Spain to preach in English. And I said, but we'll go. You know, why not? Something new. So we were there. We came and did the whatever we preached. And when we were done, they said to us, the, one of the men came up. The, the guy was in charge. He says, are you ordained? I have never been asked that. Spanish people could care less. Never been called a reverend in Spain. No one that's in Spain, I don't care. So I was like a little taken back, and I said, well, actually I am. Yes, I am ordained. Oh, good. He says, then can you come on Thursday and do our communion for us? Oh. Okay. Sure, we'll come up Thursday. They, it had to be an ordained minister to administer communion. 
That's fine. Hey, look, whatever hang-up you have, uh, that's whatever. So, <clears throat> so we came back. That's what the, what is your, who are the, who, where did you get this authority? What are your credentials? John chapter 2, verse 18, the first time he cleared the temple, guess what they asked him? Who gave you this authority? This, this was just amazing. I mean, what he did, the very act, the strange thing of going up to that temple mount and taking all these people that were there exchanging um, all sorts of currency for temple mount uh, coins, selling goats, lambs, doves, wheat, whatever was needed for the sacrifices, for the offerings, you know, there they was a, they had a bazaar going up there, you know. I was in Israel quite a few years ago. It was right after the second Antifada. The second Antifada, I think, began in 2000, 2001. And I was there just a few, less than a year after it had started. And um, we were taken there for propaganda reasons. They brought pastors to hopefully get people to go back and so on and see that things were okay. And I just, I'll never forget the day that I saw the Wailing Wall. It's so emotional, right? And we went down uh, to, the, to the patio, to the you know, big courtyard where you enter into the section they have kind of fenced off. There's a little gate. And when you go through the gate, there's a table and there are yamakas there or kippahs to put on your head for the men, right? And um, because the women have to go through another section. And, uh, and uh, I saw it. I, I grabbed one, put it on. You know. I noticed one of the guys in our group didn't realize it. He just walked in. Took about four steps. You'd have thought he was robbing something. About four men just stopped him, you know, on his track. You know, and they started talking to him in, in um, Hebrew. And, uh, well, it didn't take any brain to know what was going on. And, you know, we said, yo, dude, you don't have your yarmulke on. Get back here. You know, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I cannot imagine. That's just the wailing wall. You know what the wailing wall is? It's a wall that held the ground on top of which was the wall that went to the courtyard. I mean, it's just like the bottom of the rack. Can you imagine Jesus stepping onto the Temple Mount and started throwing tables? Made a whip. I mean, hello, Indiana Jones. You know, getting them out of there, turning the tables, animals being loose. Have you ever asked, you've never asked yourself, do you know that there are temple guards? There was an army up there to protect that place. Why didn't, I mean, I, I, all it would have taken was three, four, Five guys where they just boom. Now what are you do, crazy old man? You know, nothing. He did what he did. Nobody touched him. And he did it twice. You know, I can imagine that when Jesus would speak to you, he would share the gospel. When he would teach the kingdom, you could see love in his eyes. You could see mercy in his eyes. You could see forgiveness in his eyes. 
But that day, those days, man, I don't know what that was like. That was God angry at sin in all the, of the human exhibition. So must have been those guards did not get close to him. Now think about it for a second. Follow the thought. This was on Wednesday. Friday. Excuse me. Thursday. The next day at night. They were going to be given the order to go arrest him. Now, imagine what it must have been like at the local police, uh, uh, the temple police precinct. Hey, we just got an order in, yeah? We got to go arrest that Jesus. Who's that? You know, the guy that turned the tables and did all the mess at the... Oh, I ain't going to go get him, man. That guy was scary. Not what we got to go get him. Bring all the guys, everybody. I mean, who, 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 who's on leave tonight? Get him over here. Said, Man, we, we got to arrest that guy. I want to take as many guards as we can. And I think, I really think Gibson got it in that movie. Because you notice how they chain him? It's like, they're just arresting one guy. Right? And he makes it really, he goes through the whole arresting thing and putting chains, they wrap chains around his hand and they dragging him. I think they probably did. They were afraid of him. I would have been. If I would have seen what happened that day and nobody stopped him. Authority. Power and authority. So Jesus, in verse 24, the second part, there's this counter question. They want to know where his authority comes from. Verse 24, Jesus answered them and said unto them, and this is typical rabbinical uh, fashion of speaking. They ask a question, he, asks, he answers with a question. It's kind of like your wife. You know, you, they ask you, you ask them a question and then they just ask you a question. It's because they're half Jewish. They haven't told you that. You know, that's how it is, a conversation with, 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 with Jews. You know, they're, they're the real one. Yeah, they love to ask questions. And so Jesus just said, well, I got a question. So he says to them, I have a question. They're asking him his authority. They've been following him. They've been hearing the reports. Didn't they ever hear Jesus say, I have come to do my father's will? Or when he said, I do what my father tells me to do. See, they knew. They just wanted him to say it one more time. So they could say, ah, blaspheme, arrest him. You know, they were just trying to look. Jesus says to him, the baptism of John, verse 25, from where was it? From heaven or from men? Now John had been saying throughout all of his ministry, Messiah is near, Messiah is near, Messiah is coming, Messiah is here. The people were saying, oh, we must be ready when Messiah comes. And so they would flock out to hear John the Baptist. They believed him. They followed him. They were baptized because they chose to uh, have their sins forgiven. They repented. John was preaching the message of repentance. John was preaching the message of confession of sins. He was preparing the people for the coming of Messiah. He would take them to the river Jordan. And the symbolism of the outward baptism was to show that there had been an inward transformation because of repentance. In verse 
four, in chapter 14 of, Ma of Matthew, verse 5, Herod wants to kill John the Baptist. But he's afraid. It took him a little while. He had to get his courage up a little more. But the first time when they, the idea came, he says, man, I'm afraid to kill that guy. People think he's a prophet. I'm afraid for what the people might do. So he was afraid at that point. John said uh, regarding Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He was saying this is the Messiah. So if they were to answer, well, the, the baptism of John was of heaven, then the question is obvious. Then why are you asking who's authority? I'm Messiah. That's what John said. Why didn't you believe him? But if they said that ah, that was just some ministry of men, it wasn't from God, the people were going to get all upset because they John as a prophet. And so they would have kind of lost face if they would have said that. They, they would, their credibility would have been lost if they said that it was of men. Verse 25, they called the huddle. You guys know what a huddle is? Yeah? The Ayak, of course, you do it in your rugby. That's right. That's where we learned it in our American football, right? So they call for a huddle. That's what it says there. They all, you know, it says that, that um, they uh, discussed it. And actually, the word is uh, that they had a dialogue among themselves. And they to say, oh, what do we say? If we say it's of... That he was of God, if we say that he was of the people, uh, he was of the, he was, uh, uh, it was of men, then the people are going to get upset. They knew what John preached. John chapter 3, verse 28 through 30, he is saying, as clear as it can be, John was saying, this is the Messiah. Then there were the Messiah's miracles, which were there to validate what Isaiah said, that when Messiah would come, he would come with miracles, with power, with all sorts of things. And the miracles, the signs, pointed that he was Messiah. But they still rejected because that was their predisposition. It didn't matter what he would have answered. They were predisposed to doing whatever it took to eliminating him. Verse 27, they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. These are the wise men, the teachers, the rabbis, the priests. We don't know. Well, so Jesus said, you don't know? I won't tell you. They ignored all the evidence because they would not be put in a position where they would admit Jesus Christ to be Messiah. Oh, the hardness of their hearts. The hardness of humanity's heart. Verse 27, Jesus says, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Remember that thing, that phrase Jesus said, Don't cast your pearls before swine. Didn't matter what he would have said. They were predisposed. I'm not going to answer you. I don't have to answer you. You're not answering me. I'm not going to answer you. They rejected the light. Guess what Jesus did? He turned off the light. Follow what goes on from, from this point forward, it gets even darker. 
in the life of Jesus, follow what goes on from this point forward. He basically said, I have nothing more to say to you, the leaders. In Matthew 23, 33, he says, you serpents, you generation of snakes, how can you escape the judgment of hell? He is condemning them directly to hell. And he is saying to them, how are you going to escape that? Same passage in verse 38, he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. That is the word for desert. Dry, no life. He turned off the lights. When confronted before Caiaphas in Matthew 26, it says, And Jesus held his peace. In Matthew 27, it says, when with the high priest, he answered nothing. Reminds me of Genesis 6, 3. Before that dreadful moment, when God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. You want to think that there is endless mercy and God will always be there until you get your act together. You know what? That's not true. God can have his cup full too. There is a time. They had rejected for so long, he rejected them. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 63.10. This people has so long rebelled against me and vexed my Holy Spirit that I have now determined, listen to this folks, this is scary stuff. I have now determined to fight against them. That is, that is scary folks. There's a passage in the New Testament that says if God is for us, who can be against us? Here's the verse that tells you, if God is for, against you, there is no one that can be for you. This is scary, folks. I had a conversation with one of the men in one of our congregations. A particular thing happened, and I said to him, you know, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes, I said. Because the more they do what they do, the more they're going to entice God to be angry at them. And what they're trying to hold on to, God will just take it away from them. If God is against you, there ain't no Superman that's going to come to your rescue. Luke chapter 19, in that very same setting, of those days of up and down into Jerusalem, Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem on one of the occasions. And in Luke 19, 42, we read this. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set, upon, will set up um, barricades around you and surround you and hem you 
on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You missed the opportunity. That's scary, folks. That brings us to our third point here. We're moving along. Characterization. The characterization of humanity. This is the parable. All of that, don't lose any of what we said because now the parable is going to make a lot of sense to you. Verse 28 through 30 is the parable. Simple, as we said. He says, what think ye? In other words, think about this. Think about what I'm about to say. He's setting him up. There's going to be a quiz at the end. So pay attention. A certain man had two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. Afterward, he repented and went. He came to the second and said the same. He answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. It's a parable. It's just a story to identify this question of authority. Very simple. A father has two sons. Well, in that idea is built in the relationship you have of responsibility and obedience. The father goes to his son and says, go to the vineyard and work. Son number one says, I will not. But then repents, goes, son number two, I will, never gets there. And so you have a vision of humanity as being two bad children. There should have been a third one, don't you think? I mean... Doesn't everybody want to say, when I tell my kid to do something, he says, yes, sir, and then goes, does it, right? It's, it's a dream. It's okay. It's all right. It's okay to dream. It's, it's good to dream. But there isn't. There are the ones that say yes and never go, the ones that say no. Then they think about it. They repent. They remember their payments or whatever, you know, their uh, allowances, we call them uh, back in the States. You know, and they, then they go. But really, it's just two bad children. Humanity are just two bad children. Now, what I'm about to say, don't, don't throw anything. Just hang with me to the end. I'm going to say something here. <clears throat> I'm sure I've said it before. I have it as a title of a message, but this is, like so many of the parables, this is what it's saying. Listen to this. Good people go to hell. Bad people go to heaven. Get that through your mind. Now let's let scripture show us that. But I know that society, religion, religiosity, the systems of all the world want to always tell us that all the good people, all the ones that do the right things and, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's, 
carry the Bibles or the Qurans or whatever book they want, the Mormon, the whatever, the, the watchtower, as long as they're good and don't hurt anyone, they're the ones going to heaven. And the raunchy ones, the bad ones, the scum of the earth, they're the ones going to hell. God says, no, that's not how it works. Now, if you're confused right now, let me explain the gospel to you. This is a parable, a very simple one. Verse 31, Jesus asked the question, which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said unto him, the first. I'm sure they were ecstatic that they were able to answer a question that simple, that fast. They think, oh, good, we got this one. Thinking, hey, this isn't going to get us in trouble by any means. This is too easy, right? The first one. It wasn't going to incriminate them, they thought. But it did. It incriminated them awful. The first, the guy who represented him answered. Well, yeah, they were right. Of course the first did the right thing, even though he said no at first. But he then eventually went and did what he had to do. That was the characterization of humanity. So we're us to our last point, which is the connection. Watch Jesus make this connection, and I wish I would have been there. I, don't, I thank God I was born in the 20th century, live in the 21st century. I love my microwave. I'd starve to death if it wasn't for that thing. But there are moments when I wish I could be transported to those times because I would love to see their face when they realize what Jesus just said to them. <clears throat> Verse 31 how does Jesus connect this? How does he apply that? Huh? Here's the devastating concept that he brings to them. Jesus said unto them, when they hurriedly answered the first and they thought, oh, there's no incrimination in this one, just insist this. Jesus said unto them, truly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots will go into the kingdom of God before you. Ouch! They were the Pharisees, the priests, the Levites, the scribes. They had the uniform. They had the respect of the people. They taught the people. They fasted two times a week, you know, gave all of the, everything they received, they tied. You know, they, they were the ones that wore the long flackeries and the things around the arms and around the head. They, they had all the uniform. And Jesus said that the tax collectors and the harlots would get into heaven and they wouldn't. You see, this is the religious elite, folks. They're the people that are looking for the vacancy in the, in the, in the trinity. If there's a vacancy, they're ready to fill it if they believed in the trinity. They thought a lot about themselves. They thought very highly of themselves. 
But they're living under the illusion that God is thrilled with them. So to hear the tax collectors and harlots, by the way, this is a proverbial statement, it's a euphemism for the scum of society. It's going to get in before you, the religious elite. Ouch. That must have got him really mad. Really mad. But before you think otherwise, let me read you 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We got to read this. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, one of my favorite passages. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, listen, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus said to them, The bad people are going to heaven. He rocked their boat. You, in effect, are like that second son, is what he's saying. You say you will, and you never do. You pretend to obey God. But you never do. You never go into the vineyard and live under his terms and obey his commandments. You just play the part of religion. On the other hand, there are the rebels of society. These tax collectors and harlots (coughs) who start out rebelling But along the way, they hear the message. They understand. They repent. And so go into the vineyard to live under the rules of the Lord. You get it? See, hell is going to be full of bad people. I mean, of good people who thought they were right with God, but they weren't. Heaven going to be plumb full of bad people who said, oh God, please have propitiation of me, a sinner. Doesn't matter how you grew up. I don't, the, Peter says that It doesn't matter what the traditions of your fathers are. I have four daughters. And I never got tired of telling them. You will not get into heaven because you're my daughter. You will not get into heaven because you live in this house. You will not get into heaven because you go to every BBS and every Sunday school class that there is. Because God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And at some point in your lives, you are going to have 
to make a decision and repent and make peace with God. Because folks, I knew what the Bible said and it would break my heart if I would have lied to my kids and make them think that they were good because they grew up in a Christian home. My wife and I got married. It took us about four years to start having kids. It was, I just was, I was scared. I knew what it meant to have a child. I would be bringing into this world an eternal soul. And I wasn't ready for it. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't have good Christian parents. I didn't have good Christian influence. I was the scum of the earth. And my family pretty much backed it all up. Praise God that I married a godly woman in a godly family. That helped. That gave me some strength to make the choices and say, okay, we, we better have family or the grandparents are going to start to you know, mutiny here. We better give them some grandkids. But it was scary. And it still is, folks. Because the book, well, the last chapter hasn't been written on their lives either. But we, we believe they've made peace with God. But see, good people? No. They don't go to heaven. So what's the point here? You have people who claim obedience and they don't obey. People who obey after repenting and realizing their difference. Tax collectors and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. And, and that is what Jesus said. They go before you, meaning the statement gives the idea clearly that they're going, you're not going to go in. You're not. Religion doesn't get you into the kingdom. A sin repented and forgiven doesn't keep you out. A sin repented and forgiven doesn't keep you out. It's what we call, folks, good news. That's what the gospel is, good news. Verse 32, and we, we'll read this one. We got to go. Oh, I wish I could stay here a little longer, but you probably have reservations and all that stuff. Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Oh my word, what indictments does he hand out? For John came on to you in the way of righteousness. Remember the question? Where was John's baptism from? Heaven or earth? God or man? Well, he just answered their question, didn't he? He answered his own question. They couldn't answer it. He answered it. He said it was John's ministry. This ministry was from heaven, not earth. He came in the way of righteousness. He didn't even come just preaching righteousness. He came in the way of righteousness. That's indictment right there. 
Another indictment is tax collectors and the prostitutes. They believed him. They heard John. They accepted his message. They repented. They baptized. Verse 32 uh, says, and even when you saw it, listen to what he says. And we'll apply this and go home. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. That is what we would call a double indictment. Listen very carefully. He's saying, you saw the man with a simple lifestyle preach a righteous message and you didn't believe that. And then when you saw the tax collectors, the harlots, the scum repent and have their lives transformed, you didn't even believe that. In other words, you rejected the message, you rejected the power that that repentance to God brings. Double indictment. I had a friend, I've told you about him, his name is Laszlo. And uh, Laszlo and I, you know, whatever, it's long. And, and after I became a Christian, he was the one kid I knew would get saved. Because he was a good kid. He was a Catholic kid like I kind of was, kind of. But he was the good kid. He was the friend, went with me all the weekends out. And first thing I used to do is give him the keys to my car. Because I knew I'd make it home. Because he didn't drink. This kid could take a beer and make it last from 9 o'clock at night to 5 o'clock in the morning. I used to say, that thing's got to be as warm. Oh, but then you guys like warm beer. I mean, it was like, God, it's got to be disgusting, you know. One beer all night long. Yeah, he can drive my car, take me home. That was no problem. I knew he was a good kid. I came to him and I wanted to share the gospel with him. Once and again and again, Laszlo, Jesus came to my life. He changed me, blah, blah, blah. And I would tell him that I repented. One day he said to me, you know, Rafa, you needed to repent. You needed to change your life. I don't. That was the end of our friendship. You see, Laszlo thought he was good. He compared himself to me, and he figured, I'm better than him. I don't need all that change. I'm not bad. Got his girlfriend pregnant and had to marry on the spot, but he wasn't bad. So he thought, and he wanted no more to do with me. See, the sinner found peace with God in heaven. The good guy... I don't know where he is. I hope all of what I said at some point came back rolling into his head. It's been a long time. I hope that he hasn't stepped into eternity in the same condition because his goodness would not get him into heaven. Some have sat and seen the power in the gospel transform lives. Have seen people's lives change their lives transform, and even after having seen that, still do not believe because they think theirs doesn't have to change. That was a double indictment. They wouldn't believe the message. They wouldn't even believe the transforming power. So 
Have you looked at your heart? During this minute, have you looked at your heart and what did you see? Do you believe the message? How about the transforming power? Can you deny what God does when he grabs the whole of a life and changes it? I'll conclude with that verse in Genesis. My spirit will not always strive with man. I hope you do not think that you are going to get a free pass into the kingdom of God because you are good. I hope you understand that it is because you repented of your sins. You made peace with God. You asked him to forgive you. You saw yourself as scum that needed forgiveness. I hope you did. Because if you think you're still going to get there because you've been good, because you had a good upbringing and a good Christian and you were christened when you were little and you went to Sunday school and you went to church, I am here to tell you that what the Bible says is that good people go to hell and bad people go to heaven. Make your peace with God while you still can. The singers can come up to the stage. Let us pray. Father, Every parable is a powerful message. It was you evangelizing as, in a masterful way to a people in an Old Testament setting who thought that their religion was good enough. And in this New Testament setting, Lord, we still keep thinking that our religions good enough and so the message it's not old it's quite relevant if we do not repent we will likewise perish that is what you said I pray you speak to every heart here Lord and may you remind us that that is the message that we must share with those around us We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.